doesn't like a good love story? Well, whether or not you do, it's no secret that they're really big business. On our favorite streaming platforms or lining the bookstore shelves, people are willing to spend their hard-earned money and valuable time getting to know the characters and watching the tale unfold. Welcome to the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, and we've reserved, just for you, the best seat in the house for what our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, calls the greatest love story ever told. So relax a bit, even put your feet up, but don't forget to open your Bible as Dr. McGee's message gives us some insight into the beautiful book of the Song of Solomon. Let's pray together as we begin our study. Heavenly Father, it's a joy and privilege to gather together and hear your word taught on through the Bible. So thank you for your great love for us. And through our lesson, Lord, please stir up in us a greater love for you in response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here now is the Sunday Sermon on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. The greatest love story ever told. Solomon was the Stephen Foster, the Irvin Berlin, and the Meredith Wilson of his day. He actually wrote a thousand and five songs. We're told that over in 1 Kings, the fourth chapter, the 32nd verse, and he spake 3,000 proverbs, and we only have a few hundred of them, and his songs were a thousand and five. We only have one of the thousand and five songs that he wrote. But do not be disturbed, we have the best one, because this one is called the Song of Songs. And that's the Hebrew way of saying this is the best one that he wrote. Now, the Song of Solomon has always been a disturbing factor in the thinking of believers down through the years. Because it's written in the elaborate, vivid, and passionate language of the ancient East. It's painted with bold strokes in bright colors, and there are no neutral tints in this book. It's actually a delightful, a delirious, and a divine perfume when we enter into it. But our Occidental minds are offended by its uncensored expressions. And there is a danger, of course, of reading into it the vulgar and voluptuous, the sex and the sensuous, the salacious and the suggestive. And that's the thing, by the way, that Peter warned us against, you will recall. Speaking first of Paul, he says, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, under their own destruction. Peter says that some of the writings of Paul, as well as some of the other scriptures, that men can use them to their destruction. Actually, the Bible will either bring you to God or send you to hell. It'll do one of the two. It happens to be a road map, and if you mess the way, it's tragic indeed. And some use it in just that way. That's the reason you can't always depend on a fellow carrying a Bible with him. You do not, you better find out first which direction he's going. Now, the Song of Solomon has been used again 
by the critic to find fault with the Word of God. But Origen and Jerome tell us that the young Israelite was not permitted to read the Song of Solomon until he was 30. And the nation Israel was taught that it was the holy of holies of Scripture. You needed to take off your spiritual shoes when you entered this book, and that in this book you're dwelling in the secret place of the Most High. Now the question will arise, what worthy motive and good purpose is served? What lofty goal does this book serve in the Word of God? Let me mention just a few this morning. First of all, this book teaches us that marriage is a divine institution ordained of God, and that God is concerned about the marriage of folk. I think probably he's lots more concerned about the marriage of his own than you and I imagine today. This book teaches something of the sacredness of the marriage vow, and it speaks of marital bliss. It talks about the glory of wedded love, real love, if you please, a satisfied husband and a devoted wife are set before us here. You know, this generation that you and I live in today, it knows a great deal about sex, but it knows practically nothing about love. We know all about sex today, all kinds of books on that, the old Bromide is told about the father that took his boy aside and says, Son, I want to talk to you about the birds and the bees. And the son says, Yes, Dad, what is it you want to know? Because the young people today know all about sex, but they know practically nothing today about love. Witness Hollywood, for instance. They don't make a go of it in their own lives. Now, this book also reveals the love of Jehovah for the nation Israel. That's the thing that this nation found in it from the very beginning. And the prophets speak of that love that Jehovah had for the nation Israel. And bringing it up to date from the very beginning in the church, and it's for us today, there have been those that have found in it the love of Christ for his church. And God uses human affection to convey today to our dull minds, our dead hearts, our distorted affections, and our diseased will, his love. And he reaches down and talks about that love that we understand, that it might be translated and purified into the love that he has for us today and the love we should have for him. He uses the very best of human love the strongest drive that's in us today, and order that you and I might understand something of the great love relation between God and the sinner. And then there is another meaning here, and this is the most wonderful of all. Believers from the very beginning have found in this little book the love of Christ for the individual you'll find such great men as Rutherford and McChaney and Dwight L. Moody. This was their favorite book in the Bible, and they read it more than any other. This is a little book that tells us that we love him 
because he first loved us. This little book, if you let it, will break an alabaster box of ointment that will sweeten your life and give a fragrance to your testimony today. Now, briefly, and I will only hit high point, we have two scenes here, and there's always been a difference of opinion and divergence of viewpoint as to the interpretation of this book. The, the way we'll take it this morning, you may not agree with it, but I do want you to hear it because we do think that it's a very important to see that the German critical viewpoint, which so many hold, is not satisfactory at all. There are two scenes here in the book. One scene is in the hill country, I think up in the hill country in Ephraim. We do not know the exact location location because you cannot locate the place that's mentioned here, and I think purposely so. The very key to the book is found over in the 8th chapter, verse 11. Let me read it. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman, and I've looked everywhere for Baal Haman, and I can't find it. He let out the vineyard unto keepers. Every one for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. Now, uh, Solomon had all these vineyards, and this is a particular vineyard, and its setting is around that vineyard because it had been let out to tenants. And it's the story that concerns these tenant farmers. In Georgia, they call them croppers because they're sharecroppers. Some people call them oakies. There's another name for them, hillbillies, but they are not the Beverly Hillbillies that you have here. This is the story of a country family that had one of the many vineyards of Solomon, and it was their responsibility to take care of it. And in verse 12 of chapter 8 it says, My vineyard which is mine is before me. Thou, O Solomon, must have a thousand, and those that keep the fruit thereof, 200. Now, this family, you see, kept one of the vineyards of Solomon. And it was an Ephraimite family, we're told, Shulamite, as they're called. And the Ephraimites, the tribe of Ephraim, took the hill country in Palestine. Joshua was a member of that tribe, and he took one of the worst sections, if you please, up in the hill. Now, this is a vineyard that's up in that hill country somewhere. And the, the next scene is in the city, and it's Jerusalem, and it's in the palace. And there's a contrast. Here you see luxury and plenty and affluence instead of the poverty up yonder in the, in the vineyard. And it's given in the form of an antiphony. The bride will speak, then the daughters of Jerusalem, and they sing back and forth. It's a rather a musical, if you please, and as someone has said, the Song of Solomon tests the spiritual capacity of a reader. I believe that is true. Now, I want you to get acquainted with this family. The members of the family, well, the father apparently was dead. The mother was there. There are two daughters, and there are two or more sons, probably Moa. The eldest daughter 
was a sort of a Cinderella. If you please, listen to her, for she is the heroine of the story. Look not upon me, because I'm black. And when she says that, she's sunburned. She says, because the sun hath looked upon me. She's sunburned. Now, uh, today, the style is to go down to the beach and try to get a suntan. But back in that day, it was a disgrace for a woman to have a suntan. Now, times do change. And this woman, though, this girl, had to work out in the vineyard. And since she had to work out Noah's, she's sunburned. And she says, Look not upon me because I'm black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. And she's a Cinderella, you see. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. I've had to keep the vineyards, and I haven't been able to go to the beauty parlor. I haven't been able to take care of my vineyard. I haven't been able to take care of myself as I'd like to. And every woman likes to do that, and there's nothing wrong in that. If they're as pretty on the inside as they're on the outside, it's wonderful. It's when they're not. That's the thing that, that makes it bad. But the thing is that this girl is a beautiful girl because she's going to let you know that in just a few moments. In fact, the matter is, she says, I'm black but comely. Very frankly, she's willing to admit she's beautiful. She's sunburned, but in spite of that, she's beautiful. Now, her brothers made her take care of the sheep also. They weren't satisfied to just make her take care of the vineyard. They made her take care of the sheep. And we read, If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock, feed thy kids besides the shepherd's tent. Now, this is the life and lot of this girl. And in her experience, though, she saw the caravans that came from Jerusalem going to Damascus, and the other cities of the East, they would go by. As they would go by, there would be the camel trains sometimes, the other beasts of burden sometimes it's walking. She'd see these beautiful ladies clothed in satins and silk. She would uh, smell the perfume that they used. She'd look upon them. She knew nothing about that, but it made a great impression upon her. You'll find that later on, when she was in Jerusalem, she looks back on all this, for this was written as this woman looks back upon it. She mentions this, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? She would smell the perfume as they went by, and see them, and hear the laughter. And... Uh, she dreamed as any girl would dream. Then one day, while she was tending the sheep, a handsome shepherd appeared, and he fell in love with her. You discover that, I tell you in this book. Listen to these expressions. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. That was his expression. You find again... Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. And then you find again, 
Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. What a picture. May I say that you see in this the love of Christ for his church. We are told that husbands love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might present it to himself, a church without spot and without blemish. And as this shepherd looked upon this girl, she's sunburned, yes, but he saw no spot in her whatsoever. And Christ takes a church black with sin, if you please, washes the church in his blood and in the word, and someday he presents it clothed in his righteousness to himself. Well, may I say that the shepherd kept meeting with this girl, and one day she, she gave him her heart. Will you listen to her? As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. What a lovely picture it is. She gave her heart to him. And again, may I say that Christ wants the love of the church. And you find these two were madly in love. Listen to this. My beloved is mine and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. If you've been following us as we've studied Leviticus, even in those bloody offerings, one thing has come out and it's this. Christ won't have any part of you unless he has all of you. He just won't take any part of you. You have to be totally dedicated to him. This business today, you serve him on Sunday and the devil six days a week. You don't get by with that with him. You may be for the church and the neighbors and the preacher, but you won't get by with that with him. He has all of you and none. He says, I'm his, and he is mine. He gave all for you, and he gives all today. He loves you with an everlasting love. This is a lovely story. They have a trysting place in which they meet. Listen to this. Uh, it's, I sat down under his shadow with great delight. And then he took her to dinner. He, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. What a picture, if you please. But the very interesting thing about this shepherd was he had no sheep. And she detected that. So she began to inquire. She asked him in first chapter, verse 7, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companion? I'd like to join my flock or your flock. Where, where is your flock? And if you'll notice, he just passes it off. If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way. If you don't know, why, you don't know. <laughs> just leave it that way. Then one day he announced to her that he was going away. He said, I'm going to leave you. But he says, I'm going to come again, and when I come again, 
I'm going to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. He left. The shepherd did, and he days lengthened into weeks and weeks into months. And I'm not sure but what, maybe months lengthened into a year or more. And he did not come back, and she waited. The family and the friends began to ridicule her. They said, you were just a simple little country girl taken in by this city slicker. He fooled you. You've been taken in. Simon Peter, when he wrote his second epistle, speaking of the days that would come, and we're in them today, Second Peter 3, 3, knowing this first, that there shall come mockers, cynics in the last day, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the sign of his coming? All things continue as they have from the foundation of the world. How many preachers today have given up the preaching of the return of Christ? Well, may I say that this girl trusted him, she loved him, and she dreamed of him. Listen to her. By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him but I found him not. One night she lay restless upon her couch, and a fragrance filled the room. And this is an Eastern custom that we are certainly not familiar with today. The home in that day uh, had a latch on the outside, and then a hole in the door, and a latch on the inside. I'm sure that many of you have seen a doa like that in the country. They still do that. Then they generally put a latch up somewhere that cannot be reached through that hole, but you can close the doa. And there was a custom in that day that a lover would take frankincense and go to the home of the one he loved and put the frankincense inside the doa on the handle of the doa. Now, will you notice, that's what happened here. She missed him. She wondered what had happened to him. And one night, she smelt a sweet fragrance in the room. And in chapter 5, verse 5, she says, I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. As she reached for the door to open, and she thought that he was there, but with a sweet fragrance of his presence was there. She knew that he was near. Do you know he's near today? 
He says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And Paul, you remember, said when he yonder in prison in Rome, he said, Others have deserted me, but the Lord stood by me. Have you smelled his fragrance recently in your life? Has he made himself real to you? Are you just a cold-hearted fundamentalist? For God's sake, my friend, let some of the fragrance of this living Savior into your life. He's there today, but he's with his own through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is the Lord Jesus Christ real to you? Listen, my friend. The real test today is not faith. I disagree with those who say that. The real test is not your service for him. The real test is not the sacrifice that you make for him. It's not the gifts that you have today. And we don't need the gifts today. We need some of the fruit of the Spirit today. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm just a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. I'm a babbler and that's all. My friend, today, what we need is a love for Him and a compassion today for the lost. And only the Holy Spirit can give that to you. Listen to him. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. If you are too busy today, and some of you are, you ought to get with his word and begin to get a little of the frankincense and myrrh into your garment that only he can give. I followed in Nashville, Tennessee in my first pastorate, for I was a country preacher and still am for that matter, but more so then. A wonderful man of God. He retired and he was a great help to me. I went out to see him one day and he said, you know, Vernon, I don't sleep much at night. He said uh, the other night, lying on my bed, I began to think about how wonderful it's going to be to go into the presence of Jesus Christ someday. And he says, as I meditated on that, he says, don't misunderstand me. I have no illusion. It just seemed to me that the light filled my bedroom. wasn't, but he says it seemed that way. And he says, you know, I got so wrought up and worked up that I crawled out of bed and got on my knees. And I said, oh, God, turn it off. I can't stand anymore. When I left him there that day, I said, oh, God, somewhere along in my ministry someday, let me be as conscious of his presence. I hate to have to say it to you today, but I have not yet come to the place where I've told him to turn it off. Many times I've asked him to turn it on. Turn it on. Oh, to have the fragrance of the Savior today. No, he's with you.
You see, when you come to that place, you don't become frustrated. You uh, don't have to go see the psychiatrist. You don't always have questions concerning the Word of God. They've been settled. I've had the privilege this past week, and it was an unusual privilege, of speaking to the finest group of young people that I think I've ever spoken to, the sharpest. They're with Campus Crusade, the leaders, about 300 of them, the ones that will be working on the campuses. They were there from Yale, from Harvard, from Ohio State, Michigan, Stanford, University of Washington. They were there from everywhere. I have never seen such sharp kids as those were, and such a love for the Word of God. My, what a love they had for... You know, I've spoken an hour and a half to them, and they asked me to go on. When anybody does that, brother, there must be something wrong with them. Oh, what a zeal for God. One young fella, he's played golf with all the pros and beat most of them. I played with him one day. He said, I play the lousiest game he's ever seen. And he helped me. He's a fine young man. He... He went into the pro circuit and saw that that wasn't his ministry, and he came back out of it. Just been converted three years, he said to me on the way back. He said, Dr. McGee, let's just have prayer and thank God that Jesus has been with us today, even playing golf. You believe he'll go with you on the golf course? I do. And I said to him, I said, look, we've got to get back for lunch. I'll drive and keep my eyes open. You pray and shut yours. And he did. And I'll never forget that prayer. Never will I forget that prayer. May I say to you, Jesus was in that automobile. That is his, the fragrance of his presence. Oh, my friend, today we need that. And we see so little of it today among these so-called fundamentalists. Somebody says, why are you always... Talking against the fundamentalists because I happen to be one. And I'm becoming impatient with all of this talk and so little reality today. We need reality today. I'm convinced of that. I conclude. One day, the, this girl was out in the vineyard working in fact, she's out there working most of the time if it is daylight. And while she's out there, she noticed the little foxes that got in again. She said in chapter 2, verse 15, Take us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines for our vines that tend to grape. Just beginning to get ripe. And the little foxes were coming in, and they had her out there early in the morning to run them out. She's out there in the vineyard. And down the road there comes another caravan, but she's no longer interested in caravans. Chapter 3, verse 6, Who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchant? Who is it? Well, she didn't care. Although the cry was passed along, King Solomon is coming, it's the king, it's the king, he's coming. 
He just kept right on working. He's preoccupied. And finally, someone comes to her excitedly and says to her, King Solomon is asking for you. He says, for me? They say, yeah. Yeah. He wants to see you. So, well, I, I didn't even know that he knew me. And she was brought in the presence of the king. And you know who the king was? It was her shepherd who had won her as a shepherd and a savior. He's the king. He's the king. She'd been looking for him. Listen to her. This should be our expectation today. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our walls. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake, and he said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. You know what's happened? He's come for her, and now he's bringing her back to the earth because the kingdom is going to be established on the earth. The time of the Flowers that come for the earth. The desert will blossom as a rose. The time of the singing of the birds is come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs. Israel is going back to the land, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Gentiles are to be saved. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O oh, my dove, that art in the clefts of the rock, which way he's put us today. Only instead of the cleft of the rock, he's put us in that cleft made in his side, in his heart, in the secret place of the stag. Let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. He's coming. He's coming. That's the hope of the believer today. Looking for Christ is more than a cold creed, more than a dead dogma, more than a defeated doctrine, more than just feeble faith. More than trifling theology or a frozen form, a lifeless love and a loveless life. Vital. It's pulsating with passion. It's filled with fullness, motivated with meaning, radiant with reality, teeming with triumph and vigorous with victory. He's coming. He's coming. And the believer is looking for him to come.
Will you listen to him? Oh, my dove that art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret stairs, let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice. Thy countenance is comely. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those that are alive are to be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me is love. I conclude. I heard Dr. George Truitt, the late Dr. George Truitt, tell this story. They have an orphan's home in Dallas, the Buckner Orphanage. Hundreds of boys and girls that are there. They had one little girl she'd been taken in when she was a baby. The story was that they lived out, and they were tenant farmers in a cotton field in Texas. And uh, the house caught on fire one night. And uh, the father was burned. The mother made her way into where this baby was and got the baby out, and she was horribly burned. So much so, she never liked to appear in public. She didn't want her baby to see her. But after this little baby grew up to be a little girl, they brought her to see the mother. They felt she should see her. They tried to prepare the little girl, telling her the condition of the mother, but when the little girl walked into the room and saw her mother, She began to scream. She ran out of the room terrified. The mother sat there weeping. The matron took the little girl aside. She was old enough then to understand, and she says to her, said, would you like to know why your mother looks like that? said, when you were a baby, the house caught on fire. She got out safely, but you were in there and you would have been burnt up. But she went in. She covered you with a blanket, and you didn't even have the smell of smoke on you. But she was horribly mutilated as you've seen her. She did that for you. The little girl, sobbing, ceased, wiped the tears away. She said, I want to go in. And she went in and went up to her mother, and where those horrible scars were, she began to kiss them. She began to kiss them. And then to weep for another reason altogether. 
My friend today, he loved you so much that this morning you're going to know him when you see him by the nails that were in his hands, by those prints. He will wear scars throughout eternity that he might present you without blemish. He loves you. He loves me. Tragic when we don't love him. I'm wondering if you are here today and you've turned your back on that love. We're coming to another book in the Bible that is going to show Hosea that the greatest sin in the world is sin against love. Sin against love. The Holy Spirit is here to convict man of sin. What kind of sin? Stealing and that sort of thing? Lying? Uncleanness? Oh, yeah. But the main one, the greatest, is of sin because they believe not on me. The greatest sin you can commit is to reject Jesus Christ. God has a remedy for every sin but that one, because that's the remedy. You're turning your back on love when you turn your back on Jesus Christ, and he loves you, and you can't keep him from loving you. He loved you. That's the reason he died 1,900 years ago to save you. Have you ever done anything about it? Have you ever, ever accepted it, received it? Do you know today he's your Savior? What a beautiful message from Dr. McGee. God loves you. Take that news to heart. And as Dr. McGee mentioned, do you know that you belong to Jesus? If you've been turning your back on God, then turn around and receive the remedy for your sin. It's God's great love, a love that is more precious than we could ever experience from another person. It's the love of God that sent his son to die for you and for me so that we could live with him. If you'd like to know more about God's plan of salvation for your life, we've got a few resources that are available for free. All you need to do is go to ttb.org and search for How Can I Know God? Or if you'd prefer to receive a few by mail, just call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE or email biblebus at ttb.org. Again, that's ttb.org or 1-800-65-BIBLE. And if you have a family member or friend that maybe needs to know about God's great love for them, you have ready access to this message at ttb.org and as a free downloadable booklet by the title, Beloved Love Lessons from the Song of Solomon. You know, it's just one of more than 100 booklets and other resources that we make available for free download. You can check them all out by going to ttb.org. Now, a quick note of caution, though, you might want to set some time aside because once you start perusing our virtual shelves, it's kind of hard to stop. Now, I often find myself going from one thing to another and then finding so many others that I want to read and I download them for future reading. Now, before we go, I want to invite you to hop aboard the Bible bus for our daily studies through God's Word on Through the Bible every Monday through Friday. This week, we're continuing Dr. McGee's study on the Song of Solomon. Just visit ttb.org to listen to find out the many ways that you can catch the program at any time and on a station that works for you. Or easier yet, download our app. As we go, let's worship God with these words from Revelation 1, 5, and 6. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus came home, home to you.
Join us each weekday for our five-year daily study through the whole Word of God. Check for times on this station or look for Through the Bible in your favorite podcast store and always at ttb.org.